Welcome to America's Voice for Energy. I'm Marita Noon, Executive Director of Energy Makes America Great and the companion educational organization, the Citizens Alliance for Responsible Energy. Last week I was in Washington, D.C. and had the opportunity for the first time in my life to observe the uh, committee hearing in the House. I watched the Energy and Commerce Committee uh, move the bill to lift the export bans out of committee. It was an interesting experience for me, and one of the people who's on that committee is Congressman Mike Pompeo, the congressman for the 4th District of Kansas. And I'm excited to have him with us today because he has been a proponent of ending the wind PTC. And I'm excited to have you joining me today, and I'm looking forward to hearing from you, Congressman, a direct report about what happened last week in Washington, D.C., and how the wind PTC plays into the oil, lifting the oil export ban. Well, Maria, thanks for uh, having me with you today. Uh, the, the hearing you saw was, uh, frankly, pretty typical of the energy her hearings I've experienced in my uh, four years now as a member of Congress. Uh, the, our, our, our Republican leader put forth a piece of legislation that did a simple thing. It said the ban on exporting crude oil <clears throat> that's been in place for decades now uh, may never have been appropriate, but it's certainly not appropriate today. Uh, we, are, yes. we are now a nation that's uh, a producer heavy. We're no longer... Uh, the energy uh, dependence world that we were in the 70s. And so we ought to change this uh, by allowing folks to export crude oil just like we export most everything from America. And um, we passed it. Uh, we had uh, three Democrats that voted alongside of us, but there was lots of opposition uh, from the liberals on the committee. They, uh, their, their issues range from this will uh, damage the climate and impact the CO2 volumes in the air to their... Uh, continued demand for sub, uh, subsidizing the energy sources that they think makes sense, uh, including the wind, uh, the wind production tax credit. Now, the wind production tax credit is already expired. Is that correct? <laughs> That's right. I get asked uh, a lot. I have been one of the foremost advocates for leveling the playing field, getting rid of every energy tax credit, not just the wind tax credit, all of them. Uh, we shouldn't distort the tax code and the economy through these uh, – these handouts to certain favorite industries. Uh, I get asked all the yeah. time if the wind production tax credit should be extinguished, and I say it is. <laughs> and I remind them that on December 31st of last year, that tax credit expired. Yes, but anything that was under construction by that time still qualifies for that credit for another 10 years. Is that correct? That's correct. Look, the, ta the tax credits extend for an awfully long time, so projects that began in 2005, 2006, are receiving tax credits yet today. Uh, and anyone who commenced a, uh, a a project that fit the bill for the tax credit during the time the tax credit was alive, that, that is through December 31st of last year, uh, will be able to continue to receive those credits for the duration of the time uh, that was in place at the time they started. It was 10 years most recently. You know, I couldn't agree with you more on eliminating all the energy tax credits and leveling the playing field. And I find that when I'm out there talking with the public, and you probably experience the same thing, that there is a big misconception about the tax supposed benefits that the oil and gas industry gets. And the, the argument is always, well, the oil and gas industry gets X 
billions of dollars of, of tax credits. Can you explain the, how those are different? Uh, I, I sure can. Uh, look, it is the it is the favorite argument of progressives and uh, uh, big government energy policy to make the claim that uh, the reason we're on fossil fuels today is because they have a monopoly, and that monopoly came because the government favored those industries. And frankly, nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, today, uh, oil and gas companies, whether they're in the pipeline business or the uh, production business or at the uh, E&P end of the world, wherever they may be in the stream of the supply chain for fossil fuels, uh, receive uh, tax benefits just like every business does. If they spend money, they get to take a deduction. Uh, it's not terribly uncommon. Having, having said that, there are some 30-plus tax credits in the code. A couple of them do apply to the oil and gas industry, uh, just like the wind production tax credit. There's a uh, tax credit for solar and for algae and all kinds of things. We ought to get rid of them all, whether they're for fossil fuels or for some liberals' favorite fuel of the day. We ought to get rid of every one of them and allow these energy sources to go compete for customers the old-fashioned way, right? Convince them that their product has value, that it's affordable, that it can be delivered to the place that they want it, and, and they chose it. Yeah, and uh, the misconception that, that is out there is that these deductions, these typical business tax deductions that the oil and industry gets are, and every business, as you pointed out, gets, they're kind of held up as, as if they're equal to the production tax credit. Yeah, the production tax credit is, the, the wind production tax credit in particular uh, is egregious. This is an industry that's now uh, been receiving tax credits for decades, and every year uh, they come to Congress and say, well, we just need one more year. We just need you to extend it for another year or another three years. We're almost there. Uh, and, you know, the truth of the matter is, in some places they are. In some places, wind is competitive, and to that I say, good for them. Talented engineers, manufacturing people have figured out how to produce wind, at an affordable price. I think that's great. And if someday America is powered, homes and uh, businesses are powered 80% by wind energy, I think that's fantastic. I have no idea if that's technically possible or if it's likely to occur. From my perspective as a legislator, I don't care. What I want to do is allow the marketplace to set the mark so that we get the most affordable, efficient uh, energy delivered to our homes at prices that the least amongst us can afford. This is truly an issue. Uh, about the poor. Uh, what people fail to understand, it because the left continues to point at big fossil fuel companies, is that these production tax credits that favor these very, very expensive energy sources don't hurt rich people. Goodness gracious, to heat their home, that's just another little bit of money every month. Someone who uh, is hand-to-mouth and trying to figure out how to pay their rent or their mortgage, if their home heating bill uh, in Kansas goes up by $20 a month, that's a big deal. And the wind production tax credit has distorted markets far more than twenty bucks a month. Yeah, and we're starting to see we're starting to see some of those prices now going up. In my home state of New Mexico, the uh, utility company is asking for, I believe, it is an eighteen percent rate hike. And the public utility commissioners tell me that those rate hikes are um, primarily due to the more expensive renewable energies of wind and solar. So Kansas has experienced uh, a phenomenon that is not too dissimilar from that in the sense of um, we for many, many years had a, uh, a renewable portfolio standard, a requirement for the folks who delivered energy to meet a certain threshold. That's now gone. Um, our Kansas legislature did good work and got rid of the renewable uh, portfolio standard. 
So now our utilities are required to deliver the most affordable, most efficient, most deliverable, reliable to energy source. Uh, and what a concept customer. that is. I mean, how can you be <laughs> against that? We want to deliver the most affordable, the most reliable kind of energy available. What a, what a concept. <laughs> it's a, you know, it's funny, Marita, how far we have moved uh, from that core idea. We used to demand that of our utilities, right? They'd, yeah. they'd want to go try something or they'd want to go invest, and we'd, we'd caution them against that and tell them, no, you, you, you ha- your, your task is to be reliable, affordable, and uh, meet the true demands of your various customers, business and, and residential. And today we've told them, no, no, you have to shut down coal-fired power plants. You, you must build nuclear. No, you can't build nuclear now. You've got to have wind. It, it, it is a crazy jigsaw, and we have driven them to distraction. And frankly, I'm less worried about the utilities than I am the customers that have to pay for that energy. And that is where it always comes down to, is the customers. And as you so aptly pointed out, it is those who can least afford it who are hurt the most. Now, of course, we know there is what's called LIHEAP for the most uh, disadvantaged out there. But again, um, that gets paid for by taxpayers. It absolutely does. And there are, there are two sets of issues, Marita, that I think sometimes uh, are confused. There's the question of how are you going to deliver energy and what energy sources are you going to use to deliver that. Kansas, you can imagine, um, uh, does, isn't thought of as a coal state, and yet 60% of the power today that turns on light switches all across Kansas comes from coal-fired power plants. So there's this idea of what, how, how are we going to deliver this affordable energy. There's a second issue about whether there is an appropriate role for government to assist uh, low-income people in being able to afford energy. Those are two separate and distinct issues. And frankly, um, the, the irony is is that uh, big government liberals like uh, Mr. Pallone and Ms. Pelosi, you saw them, you saw Mr. Pallone on the committee, yeah. want to raise costs, and then they want to turn around and have the government subsidize that high-cost energy. It is poor energy policy and, frankly, um, is bad for middle-income Americans all across this country. We've got about two and a half minutes left to discuss this. Can you give us a a view of how this production tax credit is playing into the oil export ban issue in Washington, D.C., and what do you see for the future? So in some sense, they've crossed over. Um, I came here four and a half years ago, and there was a huge consensus, frankly, even among many Republicans, to to leave the wind production tax credit in place. Uh, But my work and work of lots of folks like you and others uh, who have tried to make the the case for energy freedom – has made a lot of progress. And so uh, what you see is uh, on a bill like uh, uh, the lifting of the crude oil export ban, uh, folks try and use that as the leverage to get what they want. They say, if, we're gonna, if, we're, if that's going to pass, if you're going to pass this thing that makes energy more affordable, we want to do something uh, that favors the energy industry that we love. And so you see uh, Democrats introducing this idea of including a wind production tax credit increase on the bill like the one you saw debated at the committee. That's not going to happen, and I'm glad for it. What about in the Senate? I know you're in the House, but what about in the Senate? Uh, trickier there, uh, but I also think those they, they will remain separate uh, for, for lots of complicated reasons, not the least of which is I think there is a wide-open acknowledgement that it is time to left this, lift this crude oil export ban. And so the best way to do that is present that in a clean and simple piece of legislation And there are Democrats in the Senate who come from energy states who understand that that's the right thing to do. And I think there's enough support in the Senate to get this across the finish line. And what about the president? 
Don't know. <laughs> I, uh, I, uh, I have been surprised by him on energy issues during my four and a half years, and I can no longer be surprised. Look, his bias would be not to lift it, but he has said a couple things, which indicates that uh, Secretary Moniz at the Department of Energy and others understand that this will create tens of thousands of jobs here in America and actually lower the price for petroleum products here in the United States. So maybe there's a chance the president will sign this bill. And so do you think we can get a veto-proof majority out of the Senate? Uh, very unlikely that there would be 67 senators uh, vote for this. I, I suspect we probably couldn't get a veto-proof majority here in the House either. But it is, it is worth the effort to make the case to the American people. There will be another election here before too long. And we'll get an opportunity to run at this again if we can't get it done during this Congress. Well, I'm excited to see what happens, and thanks for taking your time to explain this process to us. We've been talking with Congressman Mike Pompeo from Kansas's 4th District. Thanks for joining us today Thank on America's much, Voice Freedom. for Energy on America's Web Radio. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation, which since 1979 has been watching out and, when necessary, taking the appropriate action from testifying to litigating to protect our constitutional rights. USJF, a nonprofit organization, is nationally recognized not only as a watchdog, but many in the government, as well as those involved in legal cases, have also called the USJF a bulldog for the tenacious approach in their presentation and proof of what is right. Find out more at www.usjf.net. Support USJF as they support you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. I'm Marita Noon, Executive Director of Energy Makes America Great and the companion educational organization, the Citizens Alliance for Responsible Energy. And today we've got back with us someone who's become quite a regular here because we're so similar uh, in interest, and that's Dan Simmons from the Institute for Energy Research, where he serves as the Vice President for Policy. Today I've asked Dan to kind of put on his policy walk hat, which I think is a hat that fits you well, Dan, and talk about, um, we can talk both about the oil export ban a little bit if you want because that's kind of the starting topic of my column this week. But really what we're looking for is information on the production tax credit for wind energy. In our previous segment, we talked with Congressman Mike Pompeo of Kansas who's been a, 
strong voice against extending the production tax credit, but the, the its supporters of wind energy are trying to tie that into the uh, oil export ban bill that ha- last week passed out of committee and is headed for a full floor vote possibly next week or possibly later in August. So, Dan, you know, with that introduction, welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. And, and what do you think? Where, where are we headed with this? Well, thanks for thanks for having me back. And I wish I had a lot of uh, a lot of good news uh, to report about the the wind production tax credit because it is so uh, because it is so harmful one to uh, the nation's electric grid and two so expensive both to both to electricity consumers but also to taxpayers who have to you know who who, who have to pay for it and uh, you know we believe that that's a real problem now you know I I said that we don't have necessarily. Um, a lot of uh, good news, and that's because while the House has been rather good about leaving the wind production tax credit out of any deals, um, you know, any any final uh, budget, the uh, the Senate has been very much in favor of the wind production tax credit. And so, always when when the two bills, when the budget bill from the House and the budget bill in the Senate get reconciled, it stays in there and. Honestly, it looks like that sort of thing will continue to happen this year. Well, we have to talk about something else for the rest of our minutes here, Dan. That's, yeah, that's not exciting news. It's, um, it's, it, the, uh, the Republicans that I talked to when I was on the Hill last week basically all said, as far as this oil export ban, that if the, the uh, production tax credit for wind gets, um, you know, the Senate in particular tries to add that into the bill, that is a total non-starter for them, and, and the oil export ban will not get lifted if the wind production tax credit is added into that. Well, and the, those, you know, those, those representatives, those congressmen, need to be applauded for that because, you know, the, the oil export ban and ending the ban is a, you know, it's a common-sense policy that should stand on, it, on its own. We shouldn't be trading away stuff that is harmful for, uh, for getting rid of the oil export ban, um, and that's what that's what a lot of people. Well, it, it's it's what some uh, it's what some Democrats, such as uh, uh, Harry Reid, um, Senator Harry Reid, want want to do. And uh, you know, the oil export ban ending it makes a lot of sense. It was created in the 1970s when the world was completely different. It was created by people that were. Um, <clears throat> Uh, maybe not the, the wisest when it comes to uh, economics, Richard Nixon. And, uh, you know, it... it and it, that would be Congress. Made... Those people were not the wisest on economics. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. I mean, no one, no one thinks that we're going to reduce the price of a plane flight if we ban Boeing from exporting jets or, you know, that the, the, we're going to have continually low corn prices in the United States and continually low food prices if we ban American corn farmers from being able to export corn, but that's exactly what we have with the oil export ban, and that is why it is so. Uh, that, that's why it's so harmful. You know, the U.S. won't be exporting oil for you know for for at least a few more years, and uh, but getting rid of it creates the incentives for American jobs, and shouldn't we you know should we care about that? I mean, that's that's why the oil export ban is just such a frustrating. Uh, you know, it's such a frustrating issue because it should be a no-brainer. Yeah, I agree. It should be a no-brainer. In my column, I argued that 
trading one for the other, okay, saying, okay, we'll, let, we'll vote for your oil export ban if you'll give us the PTC extension, that we're really talking apples and oranges here because while they are both in the energy space, one is a liquid fuel that, that we use for gasoline but primarily for transportation, and the other is uh, electricity. So they, while they are both energy, they're not, they're not equal, which is, again, why I gave the title of my column is Not All Energy is Created Equal. Uh, because they're they're treating these two things. Okay, here's we'll give you this if you give us that, but they're not equal. They they're not a fair trade off. Oh, they're they're not even they're not even close to being equal. I mean, one of the you know, at the very beginning, one of the reasons that that we use so much gasoline and that we use so much diesel in this country is because it's there when you want it to be there. You walk out to your car, you can drive anywhere. I could walk to my you know I could walk out to my car right now. I can get in the car and I can drive all the way to uh, my parents' house in Utah, for example, and I know that it's not going to be a problem. If I had a wind-powered car, how far am I going to make it? You know, and, and, that's, and that's one of the major differences right there. It's, it's on-demand energy. I mean, that's the first way that they're not equal. You know, the second way that they're, that, that they're not equal is that, you know, producing, you know, that, that oil is not, subsidized, you know, you can argue about a few things, but, you know, really there's, there's just hardly any subsidy when the wind production tax credit is 100% a subsidy. And, uh, you know, one more way, and this is why I appreciate that you brought this up, people get confused about, about oil and about wind energy. One of the reasons that people have supported subsidies and mandates for wind is that they say, you know, is that they say, well, it'll help us get rid of foreign oil. Well, you know what? We hardly use any oil for electricity production in the U.S. So they have, oil has nothing to do with electricity. So it's just, that's, that's just frustrating. Yeah, it is. That's, that's my favorite soapbox, or at least one of my favorite soapboxes when I'm giving speeches that I like to clarify with my audience the lack of connection between the two. So let's, let's move back to the production tax credit for a minute. Can you, for our listeners, give us a little bit of history about the production tax credit and, um, you know, what it's supposed to do or why, and why it should not, you know, where is it right now? Uh, it, it's confusing because it, it's expired so many times. Yes, it was created in about 1992 to, uh, to incentivize the production of, of wind energy. Um, you know, there, were, there are some other things before that, other subsidies for wind before that, but it really started in 1992. And what it is is it gives wind producers a tax credit for every, uh, you know, for, for every kilowatt hour of electricity they produce, you know. Um, and that's what the wind guys, that's what the wind guys say is, hey, it, it's only, like, the only way you get the, 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 uh, the tax credit is for production. The problem is with electricity, we like electricity, you know, 24-7, 365. And yes. what happens over time is that, you know, uh, the amount of electricity that we consume, we consume a lot in the middle of the day and those hot summer afternoons. We consume very little overnight. However, with wind, wind produces the most overnight and the least on that hot afternoon, so it doesn't really match up with supply and demand. So it's not necessarily very valuable. Um, when it is producing electricity overnight. However, the tax credit doesn't recognize that. The tax credit is the same amount of money whether it's very, uh, whether electricity is dirt cheap overnight or, you know, incredibly expensive during the day. And so it is a, it is a uh, you know, it's, it's a large subsidy for production. 
it has expired, I believe it's five times, and been resurrected every single time because the wind lobby has a lot of friends in Washington. Um, and it is, uh, it is currently uh, enabled through the rest of the year, but you know what? It is almost, I mean, the, the odds, unfortunately, are likely that it will be renewed, even though it will expire at the end of the year, it will be uh, renewed once again. And uh, that is, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's just, it's just frustrating. It has been, it's expired multiple times and Congress keeps bringing it back. Yeah, now I thought it was, I thought it expired at the end of uh, 2014. Okay. I, I misspoke. You are, you are correct. It is, uh, it it is, it has currently been expired. um, And the, what the proposals would do is renew it for this year. I know they changed it like in 2013 it expired at the end of the year. And then, like, on January 1 of 2014, they voted it, you know, they extended it. So it was expired for, like, one day. And this, and this is my recollection. And then, but then when they reinstated it in 2014, they changed it that, because before it was something to the effect of that you had to, if you're a win farm, wind producer, that you had to have your turbines working by the end of, before it expired in order to qualify, and it's a 10-year tax credit, and then, but when they reinstated it, they said, they changed it, I believe, to not, not only did you have to, that you didn't have to be producing wind, you only had to have begun construction before the end of the year to qualify for the tax credit. That is that is correct. The way that the that the PTC was for for years since the beginning is that the you know the, to count you had to beat the deadline and have the wind turbines in service, and they changed that in service requirement to under construction. And the problem is is that you then have the IRS, which comes in to define what these terms mean, what it means to be under construction. You know, and at first it was like, well, you know, I mean, if you've done something like built a road or something that could count. And now the, the IRS has changed their mind twice about what it means to be under construction. Now, what you really need to be under construction isn't actual construction, but financing. If you have financing, that is considered as, as under construction for, for like the IRS. So, and you move forward with your plan. Yes, yes. And so even though the tax credit has been expired for, for 2015, there, there are plants that, you know, there are facilities that are that are being built that that the that the PTC sure. will count towards them because right. they were under construction at the beginning of the year. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing what they what they've done with that and what it's you know like what it's costing taxpayers. So, um, you know, it's it's a big fight on Capitol Hill uh, right now. To, to get that uh, extended, and it is in a package of tax extenders that the Senate put forth this summer, correct? Correct, and that is that is the problem, is that the House, I would, you know, the House needs to stand strong and uh, not let it be in the, in the final package. They shouldn't do things like, as you noted earlier, trading something that is very good, like ending the, uh, the ban on oil exports, um, and, and honestly, the, the, the people that want to keep the PTC want far more than just ending the ban on exports. Um, you know, they, they also want a bunch of other subsidies as well. So um, 
but they shouldn't be trading something that is good, like ending the ban on oil exports for the PTC and the the, the rest of the list of things that they want. Yeah. Dan Simmons, uh, you're in Washington, D.C. You see this all the time, but when I was there last week watching this committee hearing and the horse trading uh, that was taking place right there on the floor, it was a really eye-opening experience for me and something that I think would be beneficial for all concerned citizens to watch. Oh, without a, without a doubt. You know, the uh, it, it's, it, it's important to watch how Washington works, and uh, it is uh, – you know, it, it is very depressing sometimes. It's very depressing a lot of the time. In fact, it's almost <laughs> always depressing. Let me say that. It's almost always depressing, um, the, the way that Washington works, because, you know, far too often um, our, our friends, the guys that want to promote, you know, free markets, want to have freer markets in energy, but there are many other people on the other side that are pushing for, you know, subsidies for pet projects and, uh, yeah. you know, subsidies for this and subsidies for that. And, you know, subsidies are taxpayer dollars that are going somewhere else. And it just doesn't, you know, for, for far too long we have, uh, you know, we've, uh, we have Congress that tries to outguess where, where markets are going, and Congress doesn't do a good job of that because Congress is based on politics, not on economics. Um, and yeah. Dan, we're out of time. I'm going to be in big trouble because I'm out. Of, I'm a minute over what I'm supposed to be. So I appreciate you joining me today, Dan Simmons from Institute for Energy Research. We'll be right back on America's Voice for Energy. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. Today we've been discussing the oil export ban, the Congress's effort to lift the oil export ban, and the fact that Congress, many in Congress, especially the Democrats, will say something like, as as Congressman, or Senator, excuse me, Ed Markey said from Massachusetts, well, I might be willing to extend the oil export ban, but only if we get a permanent extension of the PTC, the Production Tax Credit for Wind Energy, and the ITC, the Investment Tax Credit for Solar Energy. So in this segment, we're going to talk with uh, a fellow wind warrior, as I like to call some of my uh, colleagues who work in the, the wind space, as they call it, uh, we're going to talk with Tom Stacy. And, Tom, you and I met, what, I don't know, how many years ago, six, seven, eight years ago? We did. We, we met at a conference uh, where, where you were standing up from the audience being very vocal. And, uh, and, and that, I can't believe it. <laughs> and say, saying, saying, you know, pretty sane things uh, to, to the moderators at the conference. And I thought, you know, I'm going to run over and introduce myself to her. She, she seems to know what she's doing and where she's going. So I'm, I'm glad you've made your way. And, 
I'm glad we're still in touch. Yeah, well, it's been, it's definitely been a long journey for me. And tell, tell our listeners a little bit about what you're involved in. Well, you know, like, like most people that, that have become skeptical of the wind energy industry, uh, it, it happened on the local level, and I decided that I wanted to spend my time investigating how the physics and the economics collide and how the economics of the electricity system don't represent the physical realities um, of, you know, fuel sources, uh, electricity fuel sources that can't be controlled. So uh, that's where I've spent most of my time over the past several years is, is examining the physics, examining uh, electricity systems, markets, transmission constraints, and uh, uh, the interactive effects between different types of electric generators and what that all means to the rate payer who can, certainly cannot figure that out for themselves. So um, hopefully I'm bringing some value. Yeah, it's a pretty complicated issue. Now, I reached out to you today specifically because, um, as you know, I kind of have a pretty big network of folks that uh, are, are opposed to wind, and I call them my fellow wind warriors. And But I reached out to you specifically for this particular show because of a comment that you posted on my Facebook page that I thought kind of connected for me uh, topic-wise both of the topics of my column this week, which, by the way, for our listeners, you can read on Breitbart.com or on American Spectator at spectator.org and many other websites. But you wrote a comment on my Facebook page, and you said, well, I jumped ahead there, my column ties together the export ban and the WinPTC because they are connected in Congress right now because of this debate, as we've talked about in a previous segment. But you said, I, you wrote on my Facebook page, I like that you were invited to be there and met with the members, Marita, but I don't know if I like the outcome. While I support the idea in most circumstances that people and entities should have the freedom to sell products to whomever we wish, I am very uneasy with this one. Part of it is part of that is because I heard an API spokesman make a horrible argument or argue horribly, I'm not sure which, that allowing exports of crude will make oil in the US even less expensive. If you support this resolution, can you explain how that works? And I never answered you on Facebook because I've had uh, an incredibly crazy schedule with an unplanned trip to Washington, D.C. last week. And today, as we're recording this, I'm in Nevada at my mother's house help, trying to help her move. And so my life's been kind of nutso. But I, I want to just address that briefly because I think that what the person from API said if I didn't hear it, of course, I don't know what they said. But the fact of the matter is it won't make oil cheaper. It has the potential to make oil slightly higher priced, which is why the industry is pushing this so hard, especially in this low-priced environment, because American crude, which is called WTI, West Texas Intermediate, is actually sold at a discount over the global rates because our crude is, can't be exported. And our refineries don't really want the kind of crude we're producing in America right now, which is uh, light tight oil or light speed oil, they call it. And our refineries spent tens of billions of dollars uh, in the past few decades to make sure they can use heavy oil, which is like what we get from Canada, from the tar sands, and it's like what we get from Venezuela. So because we have, like, too much oil that we can't use, 
the American um, producers have to sell it at a discount. If that oil is put into the global market, then that oil will be sold at a global price. But here's the here's where people don't seem to understand, and I think this is where the confusion is. Gasoline is priced on the global price of crude oil. So by putting American crude oil onto the global marketplace, they actually lower what's called Brent crude, the global price of oil. I'm putting American crude on the global marketplace could and should uh, lower that global price of oil. Therefore, it will actually lower the price of gasoline because gasoline is priced on the global market. And so right now, refiners have been having a sweet deal because they're buying discounted oil but pricing the gasoline they make from that oil on the global price. So that's kind of the answer to your question. Marita, that's that's a really that's a much more detailed answer than uh, than I heard on C-SPAN uh, when the AT guy was was uh, having his time. Um, that's where I heard the comments, and uh, you know yeah, I don't. It's a valid comment, and so that's why I appreciate the opportunity to kind of answer that comment because sure. it is a, a confusing uh, issue, and, and the average person I think doesn't really when you hear oil or gasoline, you kind of think one and the same, and they're really different. Well, maybe we can take it up in a later segment, but, you know, the first question that comes to mind is why WTI would be any more valuable on the international market than it is on the domestic market if it requires special capital uh, infrastructure in order to uh, uh, to refine it. Um, well, actually, I'll answer that real quick because there is a quick answer, and that is the refineries in Europe are designed for that kind of oil because the refineries in Europe, they get their oils typically from the North Sea and from Russia. And that's where Europe gets most of their oil, or a lot of it. And those two sources produce the light sweet. So oh, okay. our oil Great. is a better fit for European and uh, refineries in Israel than um, the, than it is for our refineries. So it's, it's well. There you go. Then it sounds like sounds like a match made in heaven. That's uh, that's that's not being blessed by uh, our federal government's regulations. So yeah, and, um, and they're they're trying to to tie it to the wind PTC uh, in particular, they want to have that extended. They want the solar extended too, but the solar tax credits have not yet expired. Where the okay, well, the question is why anyone extended. would want to do that. Why, why would anyone want to extend tax yeah. credits for, for, for these industries? That's, that's the question. It's not can, they, can the industry survive without these tax credits. The question should be, should they survive even with these tax credits? Um, and your answer you know, is my answer. My answer is no, um, and it's not because they're wind or solar or or because they're being promoted by you know people with very good intentions about the environment. It's it's not that I'm against those people. I also have great intentions for the environment. Uh, uh, it's it's because that the fuel delivery supply chain for these technologies. They're hopeless. They'll, they'll never be under human control. Um, when you look at electricity fuel supplies, there are three main ones. There's uranium, there's coal, and there's natural gas. We have no problem with delivering uranium uh, uh, to the places that convert it to electricity. As far as coal goes, there's 
almost no problem at all. We have a well-developed infrastructure there through river and, and rail and through on-site inventory through coal piles at, at coal plants. You know, once in 10 or 20 years, the coal, coal piles might freeze in the parking lot and become difficult to use. And then the third is natural gas, where we all share the same natural gas um, transmission infrastructure. And certainly those you know, that transmission infrastructure is uh, possibly the weakest link, but it's, it's also something that, that can be improved through human ingenuity over time and as necessary. But the wind blowing harder or the sun shining... Let me just add in, and fairly easily improved because we have the technology and the know-how. Uh, to do that. That's right. That's right. We don't have the technology or know-how to make the sun shine at different times of the day or to make the wind <laughs> blow uh, at different times of the day. And that's what I mean by a hopeless uh, fuel delivery supply chain. You know, you can't call up your supplier of wind and say, hey, I need some more wind fuel today. And yeah. because of those features, um, there are a lot of dominoes that fall. It's, it's, it's probably more complicated than the relationship between light, sweet, crude and uh, you know, Tepe oil and uh, and the types of refineries that exist around the world. It's 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 uh, there. There's some strong sensitivities in the electricity market uh, to uh, you know in, incorporating more variability into into the system. And uh, I won't get into the details of that today. Well, and just just like I was explaining the different types of crude, and the average person doesn't doesn't think about that. The average person doesn't think about what you just brought up is that variability of uh, wind power to the grid. Exactly. It's, it's the variability that, that can never, you know, that we're always at the mercy of and can never not be at the mercy of. Now, if and when electricity storage, which isn't just storage of electricity, by the way, it's conversion of electricity to something else, storing that something else, and then deconverting that something else back into electricity. When, when those processes become super inexpensive and super efficient, you know, good luck. You're up against the laws of physics there. So when, if and when that happens, then and only then may the cheapest source of untimely electricity generation win. But that time is not now, and, and uh, um, Congressman Markey should, uh, uh, should recognize that when you make the capital infrastructure for these types of, of supplies uh, cheaper, you contaminate wholesale markets and um, drive the reliable electricity sources uh, that we all depend on, um, you know, to the brink of extinction. And uh, we don't want to go there. We've seen Europe do that and, and reverse course, especially in Germany um, um, and now in, in the U.K., uh, so, you know, it's, it's about time that we learn from someone else's mistakes in this area, I believe. Yeah, yeah, it definitely is. We've seen it. For, if you follow what's going on in Europe, which I do, it, it's fascinating, fascinating to see. Tom, we've just got a few, few seconds left here. We don't have a hard end, but we've got, got to wrap it up. What closing comments do you have and how can people find out more about your work? Well, I... I um, I would recommend that that uh, people uh, look to the Institute for Energy Research, uh, which which is a policy group or think tank in Washington D.C., similar to something like the Heritage Foundation or the Cato Institute, but focused strictly on energy. Yeah, um, and we had Dan Simmons on with us on our previous segment. Oh, okay, yeah, 
And, yeah, I know, I know, Dan, and that's that's great. I think that that they supply some of the most understandable translations of the complex industry to the general public that that can happen. So, yeah, um, and I cited I, I cited them in my columns. So, um, will we, people that read my column will have the opportunity to check them out. We're out of time, Tom Stacy. Thanks for joining me today on America's Voice for Energy. It's been a treat to chat with you on America's Web Radio. The United States Justice Foundation, since 1979, has been dedicated to instructing, informing, and educating the public on legal issues confronting America. That means you and me. When necessary, this nonprofit organization has had to litigate to present the constitutional view. Since 1980, USJF has submitted testimony to the U.S. Senate on all but one U.S. Supreme Court nominee. Learn more about USJF by visiting their website at www.usjf.net. Support this nonprofit as it defends our rights, our liberty, and our Constitution. You're listening to America's Webradio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome to our closing segment of America's Voice for Energy. Today we've been talking specifically about wind energy and the production tax credit extension battle that is going on right now in Congress. And for our closing segment, I'm pleased to have someone new, a new guest to America's Voice for Energy, Annette Smith, who is the executive director of Vermonters for a Clean Environment. Do I have that correct, Annette? Yes, that's right. Thank you for having Great. me. Great. Well, today. you know, I watched the videos on your some of the videos about wind on your website, and uh, you're certainly an articulate spokesperson uh, and, and represent your your cause well. So, you you want to talk to us today about what the results are of uh, the production tax credit. Yes, the organization I run, Vermonters for a Clean Environment, has been working for 16 years on a variety of issues, mostly having to do with the interface between industry and residential areas. So we got involved with the wind issue in about 2009, before any big wind turbines were built in Vermont. Now we're uh, six years into this, and we are seeing a tremendous amount of harm being done to the public, public health because of the, the technology. And so we're, our focus is in on helping people have a say in what goes on in their communities and also holding corporations accountable for, the, for their actions. Now, as being your organization in Vermonters for a Clean Environment, I assume, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, that people in, in the communities originally kind of went more positive about wind energy because you want that clean energy. Yeah, all polling in Vermont for the last decade has been very clear that people want to move towards renewable energy. Now, uh, those polls are very superficial and based on actually not knowing anything. And I, yeah, I, I would agree with you. I mean, I, I would say that most people like, oh, yeah, sure, we want clean energy. Yeah, who wants us to speak up and say, no, I want dirty energy? And in fact, about 
12 years ago, I thought wind turbines were fine, but they were also, in Vermont, 197 feet tall, not the 500-foot-tall ones we're seeing. We have uh, a, a, an interesting experience here in Vermont because our senators are Bernie Sanders and Patrick Leahy, and our congressman is Peter Welch, whose wife serves on our public service board now, and so she's in the position of approving these. We've had one family in particular who for three years complained about having their lives disrupted by a wind project now owned by Sun Edison. It was First Wind and before that UPC. And so this woman, the, the mother of two children um, who were not sleeping for three years, wrote letters to everybody. So everybody at, at high levels of state government, federal level, all know about this family's problem. <laughs> so she wrote to them. She has a nice handwritten postcard back from Congressman Welch saying, uh, sorry, I'm sorry for your problems, but this is a state issue and there's no federal, there's nothing we can do about it on the federal level. Yet all three of these people keep voting for the production tax credit, seemingly completely blind to the fact that that's what's enabling these wind projects to be built and is going to cause increasing harm to yet more Vermonters if they continue to support it. And so the yeah, disconnect is just striking. Yeah, it's, it's, it is obviously, when you point out that these are the people who keep voting for this. And uh, what are some of the experiences that you all have had with wind in Vermont? Well, we now have three operating projects. One has four 2.5-megawatt turbines, one has 21 3-megawatt turbines, and one has 16 2.5-megawatt turbines. So on we a grand to... scale, those are all fairly small projects. Well, they're fairly small, but they're big turbines. Right, and right. the effects around all of them are the same. There are people who can't sleep at night, who are getting sick, headaches, there are some more serious health illnesses that are occurring, cardiac issues in particular. We have some instances of cancer we're concerned about. Uh, in, in other words, the health issues are, can be extremely serious. Um, but the, in general, the, the norm is that people's sleep gets disrupted, and over time that dis depresses your immune system and causes all kinds of health problems. We've got reports of, of complaints two and a half miles away from all three projects. The three megawatt Vestas turbines are by far the worst. They have, they're taller and they have longer blades. We've got complaints going out five and six miles around those projects. And the track record is that in every instance when people complain, nothing is done. So this is an industry that is externalizing its costs onto the community and taking no responsibility. When I first started working on this issue, the, the thing that I was at the top of my list for impacts was how they divide communities. But after six years of working with communities, trying to help them get the problems addressed, uh, the top of my list now is what an unethical uh, development this is. These are real uh, carpetbaggers who are coming in and, and taking and not in any way taking any responsibility for what they're doing. I've brought some multi, a multinational corporation to the table to work out issues with their neighbors. This wind industry will not admit there are any problems ever, and I find this to be absolutely astounding. Yeah, I'm glad you, you concluded with that comment because I was going to ask you and say, you know, that you, we repeatedly hear that, oh, no, this is all great and wonderful is kind of the messaging that is out there. Are there anyone um, in these communities that you're working with that is, now that the wind turbines are there, are there people who are really positive about this? You say it's split communities. 
There was a hearing last year where the, to, by the Public Service Board in their sound standard investigation to hear from neighbors from wind projects, and the wind industry and the, the, you know, the locals who were benefiting economically showed up, and they said, oh, we're fine. Well, we tracked, I think of the 19 that spoke, 13 of them had a financial interest, and the others were just friends. So it, it's, you always follow the money. The people who support them are getting some financial benefits from them, and the others are sacrificial victims. They are collateral damage, and this is a global crisis. We have a global health crisis going on with governments all over the world supporting the wind industry and allowing their citizenry to be harmed to the extent that people all over the world are abandoning their homes. I helped that family with two small children relocate by buying them a trailer so they could abandon their home. And I'm not a wealthy person by any means. For our governments to allow this ongoing harm is to, uh, it's, a, it's a disgrace and it's a global disgrace. So uh, have you seen, then, I, I assume, a, a depreciation in property values? Yeah. I mean, if you can sell, you sell at a loss. There are many uh, properties around the Sun Edison project in uh, Sheffield, Vermont, that just simply have sat for years, and nobody's interested in buying them at all. Those who have had to sell, for instance, for health issues, like to, to escape from their homes in case they might get heart attacks, um, They've sold at a loss. I've been tracking the sales around these sites, and in, in general, they sell for less than the town listed value, which is usually less than the asking price. Yeah, if you're in the in the uh, shadow of one of these, um, not everyone gets sick. It doesn't happen to everyone, but for the people who uh, it does happen to, it is it is life destroying in every way, so, uh, and the health effects uh, are not just you move away and you get better. We've got people who've been diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. It, it is, it's long-term health effects. So I'm curious, um, have you seen, for example, when you say these health effects don't impact everyone, mm -hmm. uh, have you seen someone who's come into a community, bought one of these houses at a fire sale price and thought they were getting a great deal and, and thought that perhaps all the health issue talk was was uh, nonsense, bought one of these houses and then discovered that, oh my gosh, I can't sleep? I have not seen that yet. There's one house that was bought that, gee, is housed by one of the wind turbine workers. Another one that was bought that was lived in by retired people uh, is now lived in by some younger people who don't live there all the You know, they go to work every day, and so they're not uh -huh. there all the time. In general, the experience that people have tends to be if you're prone to seasickness, you're more likely to get sick because it's an inner ear vestibular. It it's, it's really should be called vibroacoustic disease. These wind turbines put out vortexing energy that creates barometric pressure waves, and so it's not noise in particular that, that is the issue, although there is audible noise too, but it is this infrasound that you can't hear that affects people. And so different people are affected different ways. It's true. Ask any doctor. They'll say different people will get sick and others won't. And also we've learned in our mountainous terrain that terrain and topography really have an effect. So if you are a straight shot down from these turbines with no intervening like mountain, you're more likely to get hit with it than if you have something that breaks up that uh, barometric pressure wave as it hits your house. It's a very complicated subject, the noise issue, but it is very well understood now, and some very good science has come out. For years, the wind industry has controlled that subject. They have allowed 
governments, regulators all over the world to set standards that are way too high. And now the truth is coming out. They've all claimed that infrasound isn't an issue. Now it's turning out to be the issue. And so it's a very, very slow, slow process. Australia's government is finally waking up. Uh, this is a fight that's going on in every European country, in England and Canada. And for the United States government to be pushing, especially pushing a massive build-out of this technology without any concern at all for the harm that's being done. I mean, we hear about bald eagles on the federal level. We hear about sure. the sage-grouse on the federal level. We do not hear about the harm to human beings, the health, and the destruction of people's investments and lives. As, as a result of this really corrupt industry. And I've been working on this issue um, also on the federal level because we litigated to stop a wind project on Forest Service, U.S. Forest Service land in Vermont, and we lost that case the day before Christmas. And we have seen every federal agency roll over and violate their mission, National Park Service, U.S. Forest Service, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. We've been to EPA. We've been to U.S. Army Corps. After the meetings, their people have told us there's massive political pressure to get these things through. We have lost our democracy where wind energy is concerned. Well, you know, I watched your video, uh, the video on your website where you talked about about that, and I have to agree with you. I don't know that it was you who said it, but someone on the video said that, you know, they had the predetermined outcome before they came in. And while I work on a variety of energy issues and have participated in many hearings, I, I share that same frustration that it seems like the agenda is there, they've got the predetermined outcome, and... The hearings are merely a dog and pony show. The fix is in. It's as though we weren't even there. I've watched millions of dollars poured down the regulatory drain, and there's no nothing ever comes out of it. The other really, really disturbing part of this is that there really is no evidence that building all these wind turbines is doing anything to do what's claimed, which is to save the planet. And that's the part of it that people really don't understand. And, and, you know, there and are now we've only got 45 seconds left to cover yeah. that, but go ahead. So that's the piece that, you know, anybody who wants to research it can go and find all the spin from the wind industry. But the fact is that it's an intermittent resource. It requires a completely full fossil or nuclear-backed system They're using the te current technology. And uh, it's just a big scam. So uh, I gather you're not for extending the wind PTC. I think the extension of the wind production tax credit would be a true tragedy for literally hundreds of thousands of Americans. Yeah. Annette Smith, Executive Director of Vermonters for a Clean Environment, thanks for giving us your unique perspective on this topic. Thanks for listening to America's Voice for Energy on America's Web Radio. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.